Welcome everybody to another episode of Ganbei. I'm your host, Art Dicker, and today we have a fantastic, fantastic episode with some really experienced um, uh, foreigners who've lived in China many, many years, and we're all going to share kind of um, our experiences um, of some of the interesting transitions we've seen over the years in China, as well as uh, get into a little bit of predictions for what lies ahead. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce some other folks on the panel here today. Richard Robinson is a seasoned entrepreneur at multiple early stage companies over the years. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Joanne Wood is founder and chairman at Capital Eight. Welcome, Joanne. Really wonderful to also be participating in the the podcast today. Dan Krasenstein, global supply chain director at Procon Pacific. Welcome, Dan. Happy to be here. And Jacob Thomas, who is our assistant producer at Gunbay. Uh, also is a master's student in corporate management at Tongji University, is going to co-host this episode with me. Welcome, Jacob. So happy to have you guys on and uh, really looking forward to the discussion today. Let me give each of you guys a chance, um, Rich, Dan, and Joanne, to give a brief um, uh, introduction to the audience of yourself. Um, let's start let's start at the top again with Rich. Um, just a couple minutes on your, your China story. Excellent. Yeah, first came here by train in 93 uh, through Siberia. The dragon swooped down and dug her talons into me. Uh, and I have been, uh, I spent 24 years in China. As of last week, on my 24th anniversary, I moved the entire family to Bali because you can now work from anywhere. So we choose the island of the gods, but I will be continuing to engage in China. I've been part of uh, nine startups over the last uh, quarter century, uh, three as an executive and private companies that went public and founded six and sold three to publicly listed companies, been involved with dozens of others in the war room, hundreds of others as a mentor. And I'm a, a clinical professor of entrepreneurship at Peking University. And I teach innovation uh, at uh, Tsinghua and also uh, spirit of entrepreneurship at Alibaba University. Three kids all made in China. And uh, China, Beijing chapter ending, China's book never ending. Well, it's great to have you. And obviously you have a, a huge wealth of experience there. Um, uh, Joanne, do you want to walk the audience through a bit of your background? Sure. Well, like Rich, I arrived in China by train, but I was coming from the south. When I left Australia, it was a, there was a heat wave over the Christmas period. Um, so the day I left, it was 48 degrees Celsius. And I arrived on January the 5th, 1982 to minus 27 degrees Celsius. I'd never experienced such cold weather before. So it was, it was quite a baptism of, you could say fire, but freezing fire when I arrived. Um, most of my investment banking career has been spent in or around China. Uh, since that first week that I arrived, I've probably had 33 years of the 39 years or so in and around China, but I spread my wings, did my MBA in London at London Business School and joined UBS um, and trained in my investment banking with, uh, with UBS in New York, back to Zurich, London, and then to Hong Kong. Um, ultimately, my entrepreneurial genes got the better of me and I uh, decided to move from Hong Kong back up to Shanghai to establish with two other co-founders a middle market investment bank. Excellent. Okay. Um, and Dan, how about you? Uh, I've had about 35 years of global supply chain experience. 
in countries range or cities ranging from Taipei, Shanghai twice, Jakarta, Panama, Mexico, and New Jersey, <laughs> now Los Angeles. And essentially, um, my wife and I have been married for 30 plus years. We raised two kids during our expat assignments. The son was born in Singapore. We lived in Jakarta. The daughter was born in Hong Kong the first time we lived in Shanghai. And they went with us everywhere and were brought up around the world. And interestingly enough, we've just recently relocated to Los Angeles after the past 14 years in Shanghai. And now both of our kids are adult expats, one living back in Shanghai and one in The Hague. So pretty international as far as Americans go. Well, and I'm sure that they've got that, all that experience living abroad, I'm sure gives them that uh, drive to keep living abroad and, and new experiences. Absolutely, so, without, without the blinders on, absolutely. Yeah, great, okay. So, um, well, let's jump into the discussion. Um, I wanted to throw it, um, throw the first question out there pretty open-ended. Um, each of you, again, has so much experience in China. I wanted uh, to give each of you a chance to, to, to uh, walk the audience through your favorite story from some of the earlier times when you were when you were maybe just arrived or a few years into it in China. Um, totally open, whoever wants to jump in first. I was the captain of an all-female Chinese national Baijiu drinking team. For those who don't know Baijiu, it is China's equivalent. It's the white spirit, usually drunk in a shot glass, equivalent to a vodka. And we had, um, we would usually win hands down. Wow. Wow. We had our secret, which I cannot divulge to this day. I've never told anyone how we prepared, but we would have to prepare for it. So throwing it over and the shoulder. Yeah. The course, <laughs> Into the during the course, yeah. During the course of the, the banquet, because it was always around a banquet, we also had a, a very disciplined approach to how we would drink, who would drink, how much and when. At the time, I was working with Jardine Fleming, which was uh, ultimately acquired by J.P. Morgan. But it actually led uh, in a fun way to us being awarded an IPO for one of the very early Chinese companies that was listing in Hong Kong. Word spread. And uh, thereafter, uh, as we continued to meet new prospective clients, they would all request an evening banquet with the female drinking team. I love it. <laughs> wow. In a fun wow. way, it, it, it didn't last more than a year. And I want to make it clear that, you know, when we were awarded mandates for IPOs, it was not on the basis purely of the fact that there were women in the corporate finance team who knew how to drink. Um, that didn't hurt. That definitely that didn't, didn't hurt. hurt. <laughs> but it didn't hurt. I, I as well had a bunch of stories to pick from. And both of these, I'll make it real quick. The first one does have to do with alcohol. So it's a good... Uh, transition. In the early 90s, uh, there was only a few bars you could go to, some were affiliated with hotels. And what I found over and over again, when I wanted to have a proper Cuba Libre, which is uh, a rum and coke, but done with a proper Caribbean Latin American style, including soda water and fresh limes, a certain order of making it, nobody knew what I was talking about. So I would always connive and convince the bartender who was dressed to the nines with a bow tie and everything to allow me behind the bar on multiple occasions. Nice. And then they wouldn't let me leave because I have to teach them all my drinks, you know, from the, from the martinis, dirty martinis and on. And I ended up working bars so many times and essentially I would drink for free and my friends would come in, I'd be pouring very angrily or heavily. And uh, that was just a very common thing back then. 
But the story I wanted to share was when I was with a trucking company in the early 90s in Shanghai, a company called Land Ocean Inchcape, a British-Chinese joint venture. Um, <clears throat> what, what we had was a bunch of these Scania long-haul container trucks. And other than our export and import business, import for Volkswagen and, and outbound for um, Walmart and Costco and these type of companies, our trucks in between these container haulage runs were working at the port in Baoshan Port. And we'd always be competing with other truckers to do the short haulage moves for the port authority. And I always wanted to see how these uh, truck moves were divvied up. So I went into one of these meetings and nobody even thought to question me or, or block me from going in there. I went in with one of my guys, one of my staff, and it was all in Mandarin and I was fine with the Mandarin. There was some Shanghainese there and there and I got a little bit lost. But halfway during the meeting, the port director stopped the meeting, saw me across the room, and in Mandarin basically said, who let this foreigner in here? And I looked around, like trying to find, I, I forgot I was a foreigner. And I was like, trying to figure out who's talking to. And I said, oh, me? Oh, wow, it's an artist. Oh, me. <laughs> it was basically a lot of artist situation. So I, yeah. I, essentially, I, um, I said, fine, I'll leave if you want me to. And, I, and they, they kicked me out of the meeting and I was not invited back again. But it was one of those very funny scenes. He actually used the expression, it was like a, 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 a confidential meeting going Big on. Secrets, so yeah. I could see how things were going on. It was fantastic. Yeah. When I first moved to Beijing in um, 99, 2000, I was splitting time between Hong Kong and Beijing. And I was part of a dot-com called Renren. And we were, you know, we had raised, you know, 37 million bucks. And I had this, you know, $12 million ad budget. And I'd never spent more than $50,000 before. I didn't know what I was doing. And we went to get approval for an ad. And they were like, you can't do this ad because it had this like white haired ghost. And they're like, we want to ban all superstition. You cannot allow, that was a, that was in a, a magazine advertising bureau. And then the next day we had a, a meeting with the um, outdoor advertising bureau. And they were like, oh, you're gonna paint the buses all black? Like that's really bad luck. Um, we're very superstitious in this <laughs> in this organization, <laughs> so we we're not going to allow you to paint the buses all black. It's too too uh, too risky. And I was like, but this other you're trying to ban. And then I was like, oh, welcome, welcome to China. <laughs> that's welcome. Yeah. Contradictory within the same sentence. Never mind the same sort of like you know industries, right? And that's that's what I that's what I I still love about this. The China is like still, I spent most of my adult life there, more time there than I spent anywhere else in the world. And sometimes I just, I have no idea. And I actually love it. Yeah, never a dull moment. I think I say that almost every day here. Um, and that's what makes it interesting. I don't have a super interesting story like that. I mean, I think sticking with the Baijiu theme, um, I remember early on I was in Qingdao and um, I'd, had, I'd been in Beijing before that and I'd had a, uh, I think my limit on Baijiu drinks in any one kind of sitting was four and with the standard kind of 50% more or less give or take percentage of alcohol. And then I went to Qingdao and I guess in Shandong, the standard is more like 70% or at least not unheard of there. And um, a friend of mine had quickly Chinese, um, significantly older than me had quickly kind of uh, done two shots. And I was like, okay, 70 plus 70 is 140 and I'm used to 50, 50, times four is 200. So this should actually be easier, right? But obviously that's the dumbest thing in the world now. 
So I had two shots and I woke up the next morning. I couldn't feel my right leg for about two hours. I literally, uh, I literally was numb. I could not uh, move it for two hours. Um, so that was pretty scary. Um, anyway, Jacob, I know you're, you're probably, um, you're the, you're the youngling, you're the newbie of, of the group here, but I don't know if you have any stories um, so I, far. I, I don't know that I've necessarily, um, had any podcast worthy stories quite yet in my time um <laughs> i would say that like yeah I, I hope so as a student i mean like i've i've um asked you know a lot of advice and heard a lot of stories from people that are a lot more experienced than i am so you know i've heard all those stories of kind of like the golden years of china um and so i was actually kind of wondering uh what you guys think because i've asked advice and some people have actually told me straight up that now kind of the heyday is over and they wouldn't even necessarily recommend uh, someone to try to build a career in China. And so I was kind of wondering if you guys agree with that, that, you know, the heyday is over for China, or do you think there's still sort of that, you know, Chinese dream uh, for kind of newcomers to the country? I disagree that this market is closed uh, and that the heydays are over. Um, but it can depend very much on the individual, your, your interests, your sector focus, your skills, your talents, your background. I mean, sure, if you were looking to uh, try and find yourself a career position in a, in a large multinational um, on the ground in China, I would say these days they would particularly look to see if you had any Chinese language skills and fluency and also some cultural understanding that wouldn't hurt. But as an entrepreneur, someone coming in who has a great concept, great idea, I think the world is your oyster, so to speak, still in China. And the doors are open here. I would add to that, um, agreeing with what Joanne said, is that I think it used to be just being a Westerner living in a Shanghai was enough for opportunities to find you. Okay. Now, there's so much indigenous talent uh, and the market has become so much more mature. It's all about having a niche. And some of those niche could be, for example, you're a uh, China to Latin America or China to Africa trade expert. And okay, you have your niche. You, nobody can compete with that. You're the, you're the go-to. Or I think once you get out of the, the tier one cities and you go into a tier three city, you could become a big fish in a small market and then again, opportunities could find you because you happen to be the one of 40 foreigners in that city who maybe you speak a couple other languages or have some skill sets and you can build your expertise and your business up from there and then grow accordingly. Um, but the easy opportunities perhaps aren't there anymore, but I think the niche opportunities are absolutely still there. Yeah, well said. You know, I had uh, breakfast once with uh, Mark Rosewell, his name is known as Dashan, uh, this um, Canadian uh, TV personality who became pretty famous for his Chinese skills. And he surprised me because he showed up in the late 80s, 88, 89, and he was like, I was too late. I was already too late. China had been open for a decade, 79, and like, I was, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm already late to the party. And I don't know if there ever really was a China dream, to be honest. There's a lot of China nightmares, like China taketh <laughs> and China, China, China giveth and taketh away. Like China is an absolute opportunity multiplier, but at the same time, it's a risk multiplier. I'll echo Dan and being a bridge, you have to have an unfair advantage in whatever you do, right? Entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. like you have to, like what's your unfair advantage? Okay, I can bridge into 
another market. Chinese companies are still lousy at going uh, uh, international um, for the most part. It's not going to last forever, but but there is there is, there are definitely opportunities there. I, I was wondering what you guys think is kind of the key, uh, the difference between those who sort of make it and those who don't in China. Immediately, two words: hard work, mm. persistence, absolute commitment, hundred and ten percent commitment, but never give up. I'll leave it there. Sorry, yeah, Daniel. No, we're, we're on the same line. I was going to have tenacity as one of my words. We're, we're thinking alike, as well as being, and this is true for any um, international type of uh, assignment or effort, being open-minded to the local culture, especially the business culture. Don't go in with your, again, me being an American with, a, with the, the ugly American type of attitude of my way or no way. Come in with an open mind to understanding, listen better, to understand how things operate locally, what are their existing norms before forcing my way onto it. And as much as possible, try to adapt that what you're trying to accomplish to be in line with and, and, and harmonize with the local culture. Uh, you can't force certain things. I mean, we, we all know about Chinese and face and Asian culture in general and face, which is not so common in the, in the US and other Western societies. So if you come in oblivious to that, you're doomed to failure. Um, one thing I wanted to add another trick if you will, to making it or a secret or advice is networking and peer networking and finding out from others, uh, instead of reinventing the wheel, what's been successful? Why, is, why has it been successful? And trying to adapt best practices from that to whatever you're trying to, uh, try to accomplish. And finally, one more point I thought about is um, uh, mental health slash family support that it can be quite lonely when you're going into a new market trying to accomplish something in this type of challenge. And just like that, um, that what was it, the, 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 the clown, which you would blow up like a toy 40, 50 years ago, and you would punch and punch and it would get knocked down. But because it had beanbags or something at the bottom, it would always bounce back up again. You have to have that attitude of knock me down, I'll get right back up again and don't get discouraged by failures. And I think we take these couple pieces of advice and put them together and you might have a better chance of success. Sounds like there's a lot of opportunity to be had, but you have to go out and get it uh, and work hard. Uh, but but it's um, but if you're willing to do the work, um, there's perhaps less that'll get in your way here than maybe other countries or societies or markets, which are more kind of have entrenched uh, interests or or entrenched uh, like legacy businesses or something like that in the way. Right. Good points all around. Um, Rich, anything else you wanted to add? In? Yeah, if you're a younger person, of course, you should be leaning into learning and not earning. And when I talk about learning, I don't think about it in some sort of like erudite way of like, a, oh, I've completed this book and now I am learned. It's like, <laughs> you know, I have a five-year-old who just a few years ago learned how to walk. And that's a painful, full contact, uncomfortable experience. And that's the kind of, that's what you want to do. You want to, first of all, just be get more and more comfortable with discomfort in general, because things, you know, fasten your seatbelt, things are going to be coming more and more uh, of a VUCA world, volatile, you know, uncertain, mm. complex and ambiguous. And so, and, and China is very much like that. So it's kind of like in baseball metaphor, you put the rings on the bat and you swing the heavy bat. And, you know, that's what China is great for is really kind of pushing you to the edge of your humanity in being able <laughs> to deal with things. And I've found that the people who are willing to go to like Dombe and teach English for a couple of years and like come back with, you know, 
uh, that those Chinese skills and really understand. And, and like, let's face it too, it's like your Chinese is never really going to be good enough. It never is unless you, even if you immerse yourself, like maybe if you started super young, but mm. my friend, um, you know, uh, once said that you don't necessarily have to understand Chinese, but you have to understand Chinese. So if you can really understand Chinese people, better and, and have a have a have a, a comfort with actually working with Chinese people, then that's even more important than necessarily being totally fluent in the language. Because unless you're really like all in and I'm going to do my entire career in China, you're, you're like, I'm going to do two to five years, maybe seven or eight, you're still not going to be good enough with the language. But if you can build some networks and build some fluency and being that that bridge and not necessarily a bridge more like cartilage. You're the cartilage between the bones that's taking all the crunching. Then, then, then you have some sort of unfair advantage. Let's let's jump to the second part. I think we've got we've got a great discussion for the first part already. And um, so the second part is more about um, kind of this China meets the world narrative, which is um, uh, if you could think that that China kind of started going outbound and ex exploring maybe some deals and you know expanding out with maybe some of the big state-owned companies and then obviously becoming more and more familiar with international business from all the businesses coming here over the years and now it's really time for um, Chinese companies to go out more as they scale up and they're running into all kinds of difficulties which we can get into you know it's not clear yet exactly how China will kind of continue to integrate into the world economy and just the world order in general um, how do we see other countries um, uh, reacting to their rise. We've seen a little bit so far. How do we see, um, do we see China opting in, still trying to opt into the way the system is set up now? Or do we see China kind of accepting that things like decoupling are an inevitability and kind of charting its own path? That's a very broad question, but it's open for you guys to take it where you want to go. I, I would argue that um, China is willing to integrate but with the caveat that a lot of the trade organizations and international standards and norms, they were not necess necessarily part of establishing or writing. Uh, thus, they don't necessarily feel obliged to accept all, all the components of uh, those agreements. So China, where it has its power and money behind uh, certain international organizations or agreements, certainly wants to adapt it to where it's comfortable and it has every right to do so. My observations are over nearly 40 years and I find many uh, comments that are made, editorials and so on from the media tend to be with a much shorter time frame and point of view. Uh, you know, the DCS, the dual circulation system, which is the strategy now that is being promoted and definitely will be core to the next five-year plan that the Chinese start really adopting in earnest from next year, sets the scene for what you can expect to see. Um, so the dual circulation system, for those who are not so familiar with it, very high level is essentially about a focus on developing, continuing to develop the, uh, the local consumer market, the local economy, but understanding that there is going to be a role for uh, the world economy to play into that. But the 
the reliance and dependence will come first and foremost from within, but allowing for interaction across all disciplines, all sectors. Uh, I don't believe personally that there can be a total decoupling. I think any attempt to do so would ultimately fail. And I think you're seeing right now some of the cracks that are coming as a result of perhaps the pandemic acting as a catalyst to try and force that apart in a very, very short period of time. I think the two biggest stories uh, of our life are the rise of artificial intelligence and the sharing of the sandbox uh, by U.S. and China. You know, for, for my part, there's a group called the State uh, Legislators Leadership Foundation, SLLF, about 50 years old, nonpartisan group to uh, train state legislators because a lot of them don't have legal backgrounds. And that was signed as an NGO under Obama and um, Xi. And the idea around this group, I'm on the, I'm the Asia board of this uh, organization, is that on the, on the subnational level, on the federal level, there's a lot of like you know, clash, but on the subnational level, you know, Indiana wants to do, you know, I want to, you know, trade my soy into China, right? And, you know, into, you know, in Heilongjiang, you know, uh, is like, you know, I want to do, you know, a uh, uh, factory setup in, you know, Lu you know, Louisiana. Um, people want to do trade and commerce and decoupling, of course, it will happen. Like some, you know, there, there, there are some things that are too sensitive militarily and politically that need to be decoupled. Mm. Um, but as far as commerce, the only way forward, the absolutely only way forward is through that economic engagement and dialogue. You know, China um, it, on its own, even, even if left to its own, um, has some, some kind of systemic long-term advantages. You know, obviously, um, you know, Rich, you've talked about AI and a lot of people say that China, because of its population size and because of its relatively um, being easier to, to use, access and use large amounts of data here, um, that it's a perfect place to give China a long-term advantage on AI or on, um, and obviously the government is very supportive on key kind of long-term technology strategic industries. But at the same time, we know China has often been compared to Japan, right? Some of the demographics of, of the aging population and above it, a bubble um, asset price on the stock market and housing and so forth. And a lot of people are flashing warning signs, although they've been flashing those warning signs for, for a while now. Um, do we see China having these kind of long systemic long-term advantages or do we see the Chinese economy hitting some headwinds in the future? And one, on one hand, with single leadership um, and a somewhat homogeneous society, with a, a thought of advancement with a common goal, it is easier to make big jumps. However, with all the money and support going, a lot of it going towards the state-owned enterprises and less towards the private sector, there is a bit of a mm -hmm. squeeze on the private sector. And that's where a lot of the, the true innovation does come from. Mm -hmm. So my concern for the future would be precisely that, that if the, the, the private enterprises are not given both financial and legal support to take chances, that there will be a stifling of the innovation. That leaves me a little bit concerned. One very robust business that I've, I've had uh, last few years, of course, this year is not really happening, is these innovation tours. People come to China to smell what's happening, to, to really ex experience medtech, fintech, edtech, electric mobility, new retail, all the cutting edge stuff, mobile payments, it's all happening in China. And I think in the last 
quarter century, most of the time I was in China, I'd go to Tokyo, I'd go to Stockholm, New York, and I'd be like, oh, I'm in the future. Maybe five, six years ago, I was like, all right, you know, China's kind of on par. And then the last three, four years, China's just catapulted, slingshot into the future. I like to describe China as a tree with 5,000 years of roots going super deep to the core of the earth, but then the tree above ground is literally shifting in real time to capture rain and sun and protect from wind. Like the, like you'd, you'd think that like the largest and like arguably the oldest society would be the most rigid and the most you know, difficult to embrace change, but it's literally actually the opposite. So we talked sort of about the China meets world and the decoupling. Were longtime China hands maybe a bit naive to think that there wouldn't be this sort of reckoning between China and the West, or at least maybe that it wouldn't happen this soon? And uh, let me piggyback on that, too. If we are going to see um, this kind of uh, conflict persist, who's going to solve it? You know, there's so many um, kids running around here, foreign kids who've, who've already grown up a huge portion of their life in China speaking Chinese basically like natively. Are, is this the generation that's gonna solve these problems too? Um, I think that my children would be a perfect example. They're now 28 and 26 respectively living around the world, but they grew up in Shanghai and they do consider Shanghai one of their homes, if you will. They're both fluent in Mandarin. My wife is Chinese, so they had an unfair advantage, but they, they, they worked very hard at it, both their time living in China and in university and, uh, and in their careers as well. The point being is, they're like the 2.0 version of what I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they think bi-directionally. They think both as a Chinese as well as a Westerner. They're more sensitive about face and long-term win-win solutions. They have much larger networks, both within the Chinese and the Western community to lean on um, to, to look for solutions. And I think they think more globally. They realize that what happens in Timbuktu could affect you in Cleveland. So they do think differently and more globally and realize how interconnected the world is. So back to the, the first question, uh, which Jake had brought up, I don't think it, it was naive about an, 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 a reckoning between China and the West. Perhaps it's speeding up and happening faster than people expected. It's a little bit harsher. Part of that was caused particularly by uh, the Trump administration misreading China and thinking that the US was the all powerful that it could um, cough and China would catch a cold, not realizing that the key role that the American allies from Europe to Japan, et cetera, play in that, those relationships, that China has a lot of alternatives. So Trump is playing checkers as China's playing chess. And uh, it's really a, a, an eye opener to the United States and other Western countries to realize that you, if you wanna have your reckoning with China, fine, go for it, but be ready for uh, the, the payoff, the, the payoff, the payback, because um, China is quite a powerful uh, adversary to deal with and make sure you go into it playing a long-term game. So I think there were some mistakes made on both sides, both misreading each other. Um, I do believe, though, the next generation has more patience and more of a global vision to come to some solutions. At least that's what I hope. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I would agree with Dan's comments entirely and it and it's not just the the us china dynamic you see that also with young europeans as well i'm an optimist by nature so i like to think that the next generation uh particularly uh you know great examples like your own children dan will help 
to resolve or ensure that there is a, a, a peaceful and steady economic development globally, not just between the two superpowers as they are at the moment. I have to say, I've never been entirely comfortable with this term, old China hand, uh, that, that I, I hear China hands as a label put upon me, but you know, I feel that I'm learning something new every day. I don't feel as if, to me, an old China hand is someone who has expertise that was built in a certain time. Mm. For me, it's ongoing. And it's a very dynamic environment in which we live here. And I think that's going to continue for as long as I'm, I'm here. It's one of the reasons that I'm still actually based in China. And I love that dynamism. So mm. I'm learning something new every day. Uh, final point I guess I'd make is, yeah, um, for me, again, it's always a very long-term play. So anything that we see developing at the moment, again, I think the pandemic has acted as a catalyst to create tensions that perhaps ordinarily would not have been there um, even under a Trump administration. Things may have taken a longer-term view. But the pandemic seems really in 2020 to have uh, crystallized and intensified uh, dynamics that may well have taken much longer simply because you had face-to-face -face dialogue ongoing with delegations going between both countries and, and globally between China and the rest of the world. So it'll be interesting to see, I think in 2021, uh, with the hope towards the end of 2021 as the world is vaccinated and things return to a, a sort of more a new normal, but something that perhaps is slows down the pace of um, government to government dialogue and interaction that will see less of the tension and that longer term view that will perhaps dissipate some of the, the extreme stress and tension in the dialogue we have now yeah my boys are 16 and 14 i also have a five-year-old and they're you know boys are half chinese and they uh they are definitely bilingual uh and i think you know that kind of uh profile is important i'm involved with two programs one's yenching academy at peking university started in china uh about you know 15 percent of my students at the guanghua mba program are from there and then there's another program called uh, Schwartzman College, started by Stephen Schwartzman. He's the founder of Blackstone, and uh, that was also signed into, you know, official program. It's inside Tsinghua University. It's an extraordinary program. 130 scholars. You know, very very low acceptance rate. Full scholarship. And what's so extraordinary about it is that they, it's an eight-story courtyard, three stories sunken uh, into the ground. Has its own gym and bar and all the classrooms and all the um, accommodations for the you know, the, the professors and staff and um, all the um, all the students. And you'll have, you know, two people from uh, West Point or from the Naval Academy uh, living in that building with their equivalents in China. Also, the sure. Chinese Chinese are wearing like their military, you know, uniforms, right? Uh, and then there's also, you know, incredible scholars from China and the U.S. and, and around the world. And it's just, I, I, I gave a lecture there a couple of weeks ago and I was just like, you people are ridiculous. <laughs> like I look at their resumes and I'm like, who are you? The crazy superpowers at your age. You know, you don't just make me feel old. You make me feel completely 
inadequate, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, but it's just, it's just an in, insane group of people. And, you know, that kind of dialogue and, and, and intention to bring people together in, inside China is super powerful. Like, you know, let's face it, China already knows us way better than we know them, way better, right? It's been decades of millions of students and not just studying, but like, you know, living, living abroad. And there's this term, hai gui, like a sea turtle, people like swimming back, right? And, and oftentimes that's taken the form of the, the you know, it just hap so happens it's the, the father of the family comes back to do battle in the arena of, of China and the family stays back in New Jersey or in California or Canada or whatever. But, uh, but now, now there's a lot of people that are like, I'm not even going to stay in the U.S. I'm just coming back to be in that arena in China with all of my deep cultural, linguistic, and, you know, business knowledge of the U.S. and, you know, bringing that back. But China is still so opaque and so, you know, difficult, even if you live here and learn the language, right? And so I think there's, there's a long way to go for, for uh, Americans and Westerners and, you know, international people to bridge, to bridge into China to really understand what's, what's happening. Exactly. I mean, I, I use the example of uh, foreign kids here being bilingual and uh, from from a beginning age to, to, to stress to kind of to that point that that we we as foreigners or Americans or Australians or whatever need to catch up in, in our in our knowledge of China in, in, to match the level that, that many Chinese know from living abroad in the US mm. and studying the US before. Absolutely. Mm. Um, hey, guys, this was a fantastic, fantastic panel, uh, really. It was free flowing, like I said, it was um, so many good stories, so many good gems packed in there. It was a very lively panel as we predicted. And um, Jacob, I don't know anything, any other thoughts you wanted to add as well. Thanks by the way, for uh, co-hosting this with this one with me. Happy to not uh, be the lonely guy doing it myself here. <laughs> yeah, um, I had a great time. I just was gonna say thank you all once again. Uh, this was a really fun and insightful you know, discussion. I think we covered quite a lot. Um, of course, obviously, there's so much more that we could discuss. Uh, and so I think I, for sure, and I'm sure Art as well, you know, I hope we could we could do something like this again sometime. Absolutely. All, All right, right, guys. Thanks so much. Appreciate you joining. Well done, Jacob and Art. Thank Excellent you, guys. Thank you guys for being great guests. Terrific fellow panelists. Absolutely. Bye. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Let you get on with the uh, rest of your days. PM in Los Angeles. Well, I gotta go. Yes. Hey, <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Thanks, <laughs> Dan, for sticking, Bye, sticking on. Bye, guys. Happy Bye, guys. holidays. Happy holidays. Bye-bye. Happy holidays. Bye. 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 B